I want to look at a word before we jump into the verse by verse part of this thing. And I think it's a lot of why the chapter's there for us. And it's the word insurrection. If you had a, a title slide, you would see it on the screen. But since the demon got in the computer and, and we hadn't got him out yet, uh, you just got a, a picture of yourself. Uh, some of your translations may have the word insurrection right there in verse 1. Uh, some of you, like Duke, probably got the word rebel. Some of you got the word wickedness. Um, but the word insurrection, the reason I want to use it, and it means the same thing as rebel, uh, so either either translations are fine, but it comes from the Latin word insurgere, which means this, to rise up. And when you think of a, of, a, of a rebellion or an insurrection, it has to be a group of people that are willing to rise up. And that's what Sheba was doing. Sheba said, you know, I want to rise up against David and his men. I want to rise up against authority. And if we pause for just a minute, we can really relate to this chapter and how much of what's going on with a rise up goes on outside these walls because there's a lot of people that want to rise up against everything that's going on. There's a lot of people that want to give their two cents. Uh, a lot of people that we hear say the phrase, well, I think so-and-so, and, and I think dot, 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 and I think this, and I think this. And, and in reality, when we look at a rebellion, what that is is that's, that's people developing their own thoughts to go against an order rather than deal with what the God has already put in order. So when we see confusion take over and, and we see things like in this chapter, like we've seen through all of David's uh, development through all these chapters, the word order has to come to mind because every time the order gets interrupted is when David and his men have some of the greatest battles, greatest problems, and greatest uh, structural defeats, even when the order of things got mixed up in David's personal life. So think about the word order, the word rebellion, the word insurrection, and then let's go back to the original sin. The original sin in the Garden of of Eden was a violation against order. It was an infrastructure that God had set up. And God had set this thing up, and things were working great, I would say. If you were to go back and read Genesis and, and think about the picture that is painted there you know, for us, everything's wonderful. You don't have to worry about what to wear because everybody's walking around naked. Uh, you know, you're just, you're just hanging out, sitting under the tree all day, eating fruits and veggies and, and relaxing. Things are great uh, at, at this moment. And then this... This evil idea gets in. Scripture paints it this way and says this, but the earth was the Lord's, the fullness there of the world and all that dwell within until this sudden little slithering idea of insurrection, of rebellion crawls in. And when he crawls in, many of you know the story and at least read it or heard about it. And, and, he, and he says this, he said, you know, I know God told you this one thing, but I want to add to that one thing. And I, I want to add to it. And here's what he says. I want you to understand that if you do this thing that God's telling you not to do, you will get to know all that God knows. And instantly we see that that insurrection is then connected to the pride because they, the, the, the enemy, he, he dabbed at the pride to try to get the attention of, of, of Eve. And we need to understand this. Pride produces rebellion. And this works both ways. Pride is always producing rebellion on one way or the other. Either we rebel because we are prideful or our pride pushes others into rebellion. I exhibited that just a little bit yesterday. I uh, didn't know it was going to become a sermon illustration, but I allowed my pride in badminton. That's right. We tough at our house. We play badminton hardcore. Uh, well, in that moment, I allowed my pride to push my boy a little further than I should have. Um, we're good now. You know, even though he's looking at me like he wants to take my head off, we're still all right. Uh, badminton games will go on and, and it will be all right. But but what happened is this, and pushing somebody to a level is sometimes a good thing. But when we push beyond that level and, and we allow pride to get in the way and we push too 
that level of rebellion, well, then all the fun stops. And you got to put the badminton mitts up and you got to get an evil eye from your wife and everybody just hates you for the rest of the afternoon until things are made right and you have pizza from Edie's and it's good to eat and, and all that goes on. So what we need to understand is, is this when we think about this insurrection, this rise up thing. Rebellion is a spirit. And I'm not so much talking about rebellion in the church. I want us to identify, and I think God wants us to identify, the rebellion in our life, the rebellion in our children, the rebellion in the world around us. And, and when we say that rebellion is a spirit, what that means is this. That's something that is allowed to fester up inside of us and to grow, and it wants to throw things out of order. So the first thing you got to be aware of and check is this. If, if the definition means to rise up, that means some rebellion and insurrection might be inside of you right now that you don't even know about. Because if it had to rise up, that meant it wasn't always up. So right now in our, in our, in our very instance, we may say we don't have it. We may not want to exhibit it, but somewhere deep inside of us, almost all of us have that spirit of rebellion and insurrection. And we need to be clear and understanding as this thing rises up, we got to catch it as soon as we can. Cause if we don't catch it early enough, we'll end up like Sheba and we'll be trapped behind walls and our head will go flying over the wall and, and things will just be bad. So let's look at this story with Sheba. Verse one. There happened to be a rebel. Sheba's kind of a punk, man. He's not only evil, but he's taking advantage of David in a weakened position. And I think sometimes when we want to rebel and we want to have pride get in the way and, and take over, we use somebody else's weak, weakened position to take over. And that's exactly what Sheba's doing. David is just now coming off of a battle in chapter 19 where he had to deal with the, with the civil war. And he thinks things are finally over. And then Sheba comes in and rebels. And he says this, these three things that he says. Against David. He says, we've got no share in David. First thing he's doing is he's denying the king's sovereignty. He's flat out saying, David has no right to reign over us. He's from a whole different tribe. So he's degrading him instantly. The second thing he says out of the three is he says, this is the son of Jesse. Don't even use his name. He's reminding us that, that he's devaluing the king's identity. Jesse was just this old farmer boy. He's nobody worthy that a king should be coming out of. He's not from the, the right bloodline. He's not from the right people group. And then third thing he says, he says that every man to his tents. He's deciding this. He's deciding to go his own way. And when we rebel, we'll, we'll, and we, when we rebel, we'll deny somebody's sovereignty, we'll devalue their identity, and then we'll decide to go our own way and bring people with us. Sheba's got a desire to bring people because he's got a low opinion on David. So rebellion not only is tearing down, it's beginning to tear a city apart. And I've never seen a moment where rebellion didn't tear apart a group of people. And that's exactly what takes place. Look at verse two. It says it. Israel deserted David. Sheba succeeded in what he was trying to do. He succeeded in dividing the nation yet again. And now David's going to have another civil war he's got to deal with. But I want to stop right here. And we say that, that Israel deserted David. That meant Israel had to be on David's side first. And we know they were for at least 40 years while he reigned, uh, you know, wonderfully. So, so if we stop here, we could say this. Maybe you want to write this down. Insurrection often starts as admiration. Rebellion starts as admiration. I never thought I would quote Oprah, but Oprah says this. Probably one of the few times we can quote her and be all right. She says, you need to watch people. They'll start out at your feet, but they'll end up at your throat. I said, man, that's a pretty true word right there. They'll start at your feet, but they'll end up at your throat. And that's exactly what we see. Israel started at the feet of David. They admired him. They thought it was great that he went out there and took out the, the giant, the Philistine. They, they thought it was great when he was winning battles and they thought it was great when things were going their way. But yet 
there came about a rebellion that repeated to happen in his life. And what we need to understand is this. It's the same people in this story of chapter 20 that have been there all along. Everybody say the same people. These aren't new people, okay? And here's what we need to understand. This is the same people that David would have had at his feet worshiping. These are the same people that, that David would have had admiring him. And now it's these same people that now want to rebel and go against him. Sometimes it's the same people in our lives that choose to rebel against us after years of admiring us. We admire our leaders, right? We admire heroes. We even admire our parents, at least at some point in life as we go on, right? You think about when we're little kids. Little kids all play the dress-up game, right? They've got costumes they put on because they want to appear to be like the superhero. Or, or there's even probably that one moment in our life where, where we walked into one of our mom or dad's closets and we put on either mom or dad's shoes or we put on mom or dad's jacket or we put on mom or dad's hat. And we sat there and we looked in the mirror and we pretended to be grown-ups. Am I right? Isn't it funny that we still pretend to be grown-ups? We, we got a lot more growing up we need to do if we're honest with ourselves. But we're still pretending. And the same problem is this. It's that spirit that, that exhibits that wants us to get there faster than we need to get there. We rush it rather than wait, right? Think about this. We rush it rather than wait. We don't want to wait till the coat fits or the shoe fits or the hat fits. We want to put it on then and pretend we're growing up then. Don't you think God knows you want to wear the suit jacket? But don't you also think God knows when the suit jacket will fit you? Don't you also think he knows that if you put it on too early, it's going to swallow you up and you're not going to be able to handle it and you're going to get frustrated with it? Think about Eve. Go back to that garden scene. So that serpent is there. He's appealing to her her, her pride. He's appealing to that rebellious attitude that's inside of each of us. And he uses this phrase, you will be just like God if you do this. She wants to put on daddy's clothes. That's exactly what she's going on. She says, give me this. I want this. Eve should have just left it alone. God had a great order already established. And she should have just left it at that. But instead, she wanted to put it on. And then when she put it on and she began to realize she didn't like the way it fit. And she didn't like the frustrations that came with it. Who did they then blame? God. Right? It's the same thing with us, guys. When we choose to rebel and we choose to think we need to get ourselves into a position that God hadn't put us in, sometimes the coat's not going to fit and we're not going to like the way it makes us feel and the frustrations that come with it. You go to this next part after admiration. When admiration turns to jealousy and we want to start killing the person that we used to admire, that's where Sheba's at. Sheba at some point had to admire David as being the leader. At some point along the way, he had submitted because he's in the same group of people that had submitted to David for so long. Yet now he gets to a spot where he's upset. He's angry. He don't like the way things are going. He sees an opportunity, whatever it is. And he comes up with the mindset of thinking, if I just get rid of him, maybe I can be the leader. Well, I got news for you. Just because you kill the king don't make you king. Right. I sometimes wonder with Judas himself when he took the 30 pieces of silver, if he thought by eliminating the Messiah, that was going to make him the Messiah. Well, I got news for Judah and anybody else. You can give back the 30 pieces of silver because just killing the king doesn't make you king. Correct? And that's sometimes where we get. Rebels reject authority. And believers, we need to understand this more than anybody else because we can't continue to teach submission and then walk in rebellion. Right? Sin divides us. Look, look, at, what, look at what happens with this whole scene. The teardown that David's got going, the trash talk that Sheba did on David, he's, 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 um, he's humiliating his name 
so that he could elevate himself. You ever noted that the people that gossip the most usually have the least? Right? The people who gossip the most about you normally have the least amount of stuff going on for them. Maybe they need to realize that in reality, if they wouldn't spend all their time and energy on your business, they might have some time and energy depend on their own business. And that might just help them out a little bit, right? Is it true? This is what Sheba's doing. He's all up in David's business. And because of this, he never develops himself. And the people of Israel, well, they're like a bunch of kids. They feel neglected. We saw it in chapter 19 as they were arguing over who was going to be closest to the king. They feel neglected. So they accept any attention that comes their way. Now, I didn't even think it was a big lesson, but maybe we need to write it down to make sure we grab it. Don't act like a child and take any attention that comes your way. Because normally cheap attention lowers the value of yourself. That's where Israel's at. They've taken this cheap attention from Sheba. Chapter 19, just last week at the end, we saw them arguing over what tribe was going to be closest with David. Well, here it reveals as fast as they're able to rebel against David, it shows that last week wasn't an argument to honor David. It was an argument to exalt themselves and to promote themselves into a position. And the sad but true thing is, it's the nature of people to divide. Listen to what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter four. For believers held together by the spirit, he says, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy in the calling which you were called with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, enduring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. What that verse is saying is we don't make the unity. We keep the unity. The Holy Spirit makes the unity and it's our job to keep it. And when we choose not to do that, we see division come in. Verse two, not all the men divided, though. Verse two says that the men of Judah remain loyal to the king. I'm going to tell you right now, when everybody else is deserting and dividing, that's the greatest opportunity for you to demonstrate your loyalty to somebody. When everybody else is going against and everybody else is tearing down, it's the greatest opportunity for you to demonstrate your loyalty to them. And it's no different with God. When everybody else is cowering and going away, when everybody else is, is dividing and going the other way, it's the greatest opportunity for us to demonstrate our loyalty. I think as believers, we should imitate the loyalty of Judah right here that they show their king. They stay dedicated and loyal to him despite everything that was going on. We stay loyal to Jesus despite the mocking that may come our way. We stay loyal to Jesus despite the rebellion. We stay loyal to Jesus despite the times when we feel distant and don't even understand what's going on. We stay loyal because loyalty is a commodity. And here's another lesson. Rebellion always hurts other people. Now, it does hurt Sheba in the end. It does hurt Joab here at the end. But but look at what rebellion has hurt so far. David's rebellion hurt Bathsheba. It hurt his kids. It hurt the nation. In verse 3, we're about to read, it hurt the concubines. Joab and Amasa get hurt. Sheba, almost an entire city of Abel gets destroyed. There's a lot of people getting hurt off of single people's rebellion in this story. Verse 3, it says this, David put away the women Absalom had violated. He put them in seclusion. Now, I don't honestly know what David's going here, but I got two arguments. One, maybe he's finally wisened up and understood I should have never had concubines to begin with. So I'm going to put them away and I'm not going to mess with them anymore. You can read the translation yourself and it understands exactly what we mean by put away and not mess with anymore. He's, I'm not going to be with him anymore. That, 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 that part of my life is done. Maybe he's still deciding to, to get right with God and he's going to limit his cell phone sexual pleasure and other things that are going through. I don't know. But what I do know is that we see in this, despite whatever's going on, sin's got consequences. 
And these concubines, man, they had to live horrible the rest of their life. Look how unhappy this whole thing sounds. They're, they're, they're shut up to the day of their death, living in widowhood. They're not allowed to marry anybody else. They're not allowed to ever have kids. They're not allowed to, to get out and do their own thing. They're not even allowed to be with David anymore that they had been with. What we see is the horrible effects that sin ha- has on others. And, and just in this story, it decides to pause right there to show us that. Now, part of that pause to show us that David's getting back into his position of authority. But the other pause has to show us that there's constant consequences that surround our sin with the decisions we make. Get back to the battle, verses 4 and 5. David tells Amasa, who, remember last week he put in charge ahead of Joab, to marshal up an army to go against Sheba. Amasa, Absalom's former general. So this was an enemy of David, who now David is put to be the commander of his army, hopefully making and keeping peace with the other side. And at this point, he even gives him a timeline. He says, I want you to assemble the men of Judah. Keep that in mind, because I didn't catch something until uh, yesterday on reading this. We're talking about men of Judah, where he's supposed to be recruiting. And he says within three days. David knew that times before, time was of the essence. He knew that if he didn't have that spy a couple chapters ago to to interrupt time and make things happen slower, it would have been bad news for him. So this time, he doesn't want to make the same mistake. He wants to be able to react quickly. But verse 5 says this, Amasa delayed longer than the set time. What the verse says, Amasa wasn't able to get the job done. Now, I don't know if people didn't trust Amasa because he was once on the other side of the army. I don't know if Amasa just didn't try. I don't know if Amasa just wasn't good at what he did since he had already clearly lost the last two fights against Joab. Uh, So things weren't looking good for him being that military leader. But we do see that some things can't wait because the very next verse, 6 and 7, David gets tired of waiting. He says, you know what, I'm going to send my royal guard. And as soon as he develops this plan, now we've got two groups going after one guy. And in this process, we get to this this little pause of verses 8 through 10, where we get a skirmish into battle. And we use we see Joab use deception yet again to murder somebody. This guy is prone to violence. And when you get prone to violence, you get numb to the effects of violence. Verse 8, Amasa came before them. But, but it says this. Look at the verse. Verse 8, it was going to be on the screen, but it's not so. So check it out. And here's what I want to make sure you get. They were at the great stone where? And Gibeon. Where's Gibeon? That's a Benjamite territory. Where is Amasa supposed to be recruiting army people at? Judah. Why is the guy who's supposed to be recruiting in Judah over with the Benjamites? Now, I don't have the answer. But I'm just telling you, when I read this, the first couple of times I read it, I said, man, Joab is just like this brutal guy that wants to kill the competition. But might it be, and I'm not saying it is, I'm just saying this is one of those areas you got to check it out and decide. Might it be that Joab understood Amasa ain't doing the job he's supposed to do. And if he's not going to do the job he's supposed to do, he's not going to be beneficial to the kingdom, to the nation. Remember, everything Joab does is all about bettering the nation. He doesn't always do it right, but he's loyal to the nation. And might that be the reason that we get to this next verse where Joab decides to take a mass out? Now, and again, I don't know. I just think it's worth studying and checking out. It lists two different locations where they were supposed to be. Maybe that's why the trust wasn't there. Maybe that's why there's no army. Maybe that's why there's such a big problem. And it says that a massa came forward and he grabbed him by the beard. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I don't really want anybody coming up to grab my beard. Either that's a sign of respect or, or anything else in this territory. But, it, but pulling those little hairs on my chinny chin chin, that, that just ain't a very comfortable thing. So I'm not going to go for that. So we're not going to promote that uh, here. We're going to keep that as a biblical thing of the Old Testament and, 
and leave it alone. But that is what it is. It was a sign of, of good. It was a sign of peace. Uh, it was nothing weird and homosexual going on that says he was going to kiss either. But here's what it says. You got to picture this scene because this is how smart Joab is. So he's walking up to Amasa. He's, he's greeting him. How's everything going? Are you healthy? Dude grabs his beard. He drops his sword. Now, now you, you've got no worry if you watch a sword hit the ground, right? But Joab's got this other sword because it says that when they grabbed the beard, he stuck the sword in his gut. And as Duke's translation put, spilled his intestines all over the ground. He's getting the job done that needed to be done. Now, this is a violent thing and this is a rough thing. But but we also got to grab a hold of, of what's going on in the scene. Joab is doing this out of two reasons, rivalry and a concern that Amasa is not the best leader for the army. Now, I'm not saying what Joab does is right. Joab's going to get in a lot of trouble in the book of Kings. Uh, so he doesn't get off the hook for his rebellion. But his rebellion is used to eliminate this guy that's already been a, been a problem for himself, right? Change in leadership happens. That guy dies while well, a new leader's got to take over, right? Joab, it says in verse 11 through 14, Joab takes command of the troops loyal to David. Now read verse 12. Verse 12 says, Now Amasa had been withering in his blood in the middle of the highway. Right before that, it says that Joab and his brother Abishai, they done, they done left to do what they're supposed to be doing. They're continuing their pursuit of Sheba. Verse 12, we picture Amasa sitting there laying in his blood, maybe still in the process of dying. And the men who had seen it all have stopped. It's easy to get sidetracked, isn't it? They get sidetracked because they're watching this guy laying in the street, dying. And because of that, they can't go on. So it says, so he moved a master from, this is just another guy. Another guy moved a master from the highway to the field and threw a garment over him because he realized that all those who encountered a master were stopping. Now, it might seem like a harsh and kind of a cruel lesson, but I think there is always a spiritual lesson in everything that, now remember what we have going on in the book of, well, all the books of the Bible is we've got a real story that took place so we've got a historical event, and then you and I are supposed to be drawing spiritual lessons out of it. So this is not exactly what God wanted. It, it doesn't say that, but it does say that God can teach us things through it. Okay, so it's recording something to happen. God's going to teach us things through it. How often do we get stuck on things that were dead in our lives, and we stop going on to the visions and the goals that we were supposed to be pursuing? Is that not exactly what's taking place right here? Someone is laying in the street dying, and people have, the whole army. Only the scripture says it. Only two of the guys had made it through to continue to pursue Sheba, and the whole army of troops has stopped to just stare at this guy. I mean, maybe they were wondering, should I, should I like finish him off? Should I make this more peaceful? You know, I don't know what they were thinking, but whatever they were thinking, they had to stop because of this distraction of death, and they couldn't go on. So one person wisens up and says, you know what? Something dead should not be stopping us from our goal and our vision. So he drags him to the side and he takes his garment and he throws over him so that people aren't stopped and staring at the dead thing any longer. Now, I don't know what your dead thing is, but I've got to look at verse 12 and say, maybe God's trying to pause for just a minute and tell you whatever is dead. You've got to drag it to the side, throw something over it so that you can go on to your greater vision and purpose. It's there. OK, verse 13, it says this right after they're able to do that. and The, the picture has changed. All the people went after Joab. So everybody's good. So it shows us that that method worked. It was a successful idea. Everybody's now allowed to go after Joab, his leadership, 
and chase after Sheba. For all those that were ruthless in their devotion to David, they find that Joab is the true leader. Soldiers naturally follow the commander that's led them to victory over and over again. That's, Joab's done it, man. He's done this. And, and then it says this. He went through all the tribes of Israel. Now we've got a big civil war and revolt kind of getting started right here again. Yet Joab is still going to hit all the tribes and find out who's really supporting David and who's really supporting Sheba. You got, you got a guy who's smart. Because despite how, how Sheba tried to act like he had everybody coming, it says that David found those loyal. I mean, sorry, Joab found those loyal to David and all these tribes that he was going to. So not everybody was against David. He was still able to draw good men all the way around. All while this time period is going on, Sheba gets to the city of, of Abel and is hiding behind the walls. Up to verse 15 now, 15 through 22. Let me read 15. Joab's troops came and besieged Sheba and Abel. They built a siege ramp against the outer wall of the city while the troops of Joab were battering the wall to make it collapse. Now, this is a military practice that would go on in the Old Testament. And, and people in besieging cities normally were those that lost the most. You're talking about innocent people that are in the city that is getting attacked because a criminal is hiding there. They build this, 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 this siege tower. They're, they're ramming on the walls. They're shaking things up. And thankfully, verse 16 says, and a wise woman cried out from the city. Men, just, just say it. Thank you for the wise women in our lives. This is an opportunity for you to say that. If you don't, your wife, girlfriend, baby mama, mama herself will be really mad at you. Right? I'm grateful for wise women that have come about in our lives. And, and this wise woman shows it. What does she say? She took refuge in the city. The, the siege warfare is terrible. Yet this woman knew there was something that she would do. So she, she's called wise, one, because she makes a decision to do something. Wise people do something. They don't just think, they don't just see the idea, they do something before this whole city is destroyed. She doesn't, this is a good thing, she does not speak to just anybody. She cries out for who's in charge. See, when you got a problem, you don't need to talk to just anybody. You need to talk to who's in charge. And that's what she does. She cries out for Joab. Now, I don't know, and maybe that's a lesson for us, we need to make sure we're speaking to the right one. I don't know how close they actually got. It says that she cried out. So at one point, I, I'm picturing her, again, just a picture because I'm a picture guy. I picture her standing on the wall of the city. The siege ramp has been built. When, when we get to that in just a minute, when a siege tower gets built, it gets everybody's attention, right? And she's shouting out, I, I need to speak to Joab who's in charge. I need to speak to the commander of this army. Now, I don't know if she came down from the wall then and they talked like buddy, buddy. I don't know if Joab just walked to the front of the line and they're still shouting across. But can you imagine how nervous Sheba has to be who's in this city who hears this lady crying out for Joab to find out what she can do to stop this war from taking place? And he's hearing this conversation. And this lady, thankfully, sits down with Joab or, or, or yells at Joab across, whatever it is. And Joab being smart enough makes a deal. Verse 21. Deliver him only and I will depart from the city. Joab's wise enough to know I've got no quarrel with this city. My quarrel is only against Sheba. Now, now back before before we jump into verse 20, verse 21 and 22, go back to verse 15 where it says they built this siege ramp. A siege tower means nothing if it's an idle threat. So just the fact now, I love how that verse puts both. Just the fact that they built this thing. Now, they knew what this was for. They knew what it was going to do battle wise and war wise. They knew what was going to happen if that army got into that city. 
But just building it and it being an idle threat wouldn't accomplish anything. So why it's getting built, there's another group of people that are ramming the walls. Letting them know, like, this this isn't an idle threat. This is serious. Don't make idle threats. You're going to make a threat, follow through with it. Because if you make an idle threat, people don't really trust you. People don't really have to follow through with it, right? Now, make sure your idle threat is prayed about, that it's followed through with scripture, that it's bathed. And, and I don't want you threatening things the wrong way and say, well, pastor said I can go out and tear down city walls. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying we don't need to have idle threats either, right? So, so here's what goes on. This woman, she came, she calls out Joab. Joab didn't allow himself. And here, here's what I love. This is big. Joab didn't allow himself to be distracted by other issues. Sheba was the root of the problem. Not anybody else in the city. Not the fact that they now, now legally, war, uh, war wise, Joab could have destroyed the whole city because from a political point of view, they're harboring a fugitive. They're hiding somebody who is against the king. But Joab is wise enough to see that Sheba himself is the problem. And often when we deal with issues, we get distracted by bordering issues. And what that means is this. We're after one thing, but we get distracted by all the things connected to that one thing. And then we never deal with the one thing because we were so distracted with all the other issues that bordered that one thing. We never did solve the one thing that we were supposed to be arguing against. Am I right? Is this not true to what we do? We get distracted by personalities. We get distracted by, by what others have. We get distracted by being misled. We get distracted by words. We get distracted by the wrong actions, by the wrong enemies. And, and maybe this verse right here, verse 15, is just tell us we need to deal with the real issue. We need to deal with our Sheba just like Joab does. Figure out what the problem is, address just that problem, and deal with it straightforward. The people of this town, they recognize that Joab's words are true. Sheba really is against the king, and he must be dealt with. You ever notice when truth comes in, you've got to kick emotions and feelings out? Now think about the people of this city. What are they known for? What are they known for? The wise woman, she, she tells Joab. What is it? Problem solving. They're problem solvers. They're peaceful. Right? Oh, you did some homework. Yeah. Rest of y'all should brown nose yourselves up here too. Right? <laughs> problem solving and, and, and keeping peace. It's something they've been doing for a long time. Remember, she, she appeals with her, with her argument to Joab. She appeals to the nation. You, you don't want to be responsible for destroying the mother of the nation, like something that, that's important. So she's got Joab's attention because Joab's all about the nation. Right? And she's got to go. But the people, then they got to ignore their feelings and they got to ignore their emotions and they got to go with truth. And the truth is that Sheba is against the king. And if that is true, then they've got to act on that thing. In verse 22, they do. It says, so they cut off the head of Sheba and they threw it out to Joab. Can you just picture this section? Now, I don't know why she's yelling from the wall. Maybe maybe Sheba's already like went and hid somewhere. And this a wise woman, the patriarch of the town. I don't know. But she's got the authority and she says, go get him right now. Like, you know where he's hiding at? Go get him. Bring him over here. We're going to cut his head off. We're going to throw it over the city and we're going to save our place. Now, that doesn't really sound like a whole lot of peace, right? Does that sound peaceful to you? First night we read this with the kids. We're sitting there and we're, we're reading it. And it says, and this, this lady, a wise woman from the city or whatever, she was a peaceful lady. And then the very next, like two sentences later, we read, they cut the head off and they throw it over the city. Now my boys, my boys, Paxton and Reese, they're like, yeah, this is some cool stuff right now, right? We're talking about cutting heads off and throwing them over city gates. But the girls in the room, they were, they were a little paused. You know, Haley and Crystal, well, what's it mean that she's peaceful yet doing this? Sometimes peace comes with a cost. You understand that? 
Sometimes peace comes with a cost. Now, we don't like that, and that may not be something that we like to deal with. But the scripture tells us this. Once they dealt with the problem, once they dealt with the criminal, they found peace. Peace can only come after you deal with the issue. Now, I don't know what your issue is. I don't know what your criminal is. I don't know what your problem is. But you can't get the peace that you've been wanting to get until you deal with it. And some of you right now don't have peace in your lives because you haven't dealt with the issue that's behind it. And until you deal with the issue, and if you've got to cut its head off, cut its head off. Until you do that, do not go cut the head off of any of your exes, any of your bosses. anybody. I know where y'all's minds just went. I saw it. Everybody's eyes just lit up. Pastor said I can cut a head off and get away with it, right? His wife will be a lawyer soon enough and she'll get us out of this thing. No, it's not what I'm saying, all right? But you got to deal with your issue. Be careful who you associate with at the same time too, though. Because they would have never had this issue, right, if they hadn't let Sheba in. we got to be careful who we associate with. And sometimes the peaceful solution is just dealing with the one thing that needs to be dealt with. And I don't know what that one thing is, but need to deal with it. And then you get this picture. I put PG-13, but maybe we should call it R, right? Joab sees exactly what he's looking for. This head comes flying over the wall. It lands. I picture one of his men probably had to go pick it up, had to roll it over, make sure it was Sheba. You know, you don't want the wrong guy's head laying at your battle lines. So, so he checks it out, makes sure it's him. He confirms it's the man. And then scripture just tells us that the army left and went back to Jerusalem. The rebel problem had been solved. At least one of the rebel problems in this thing. And therein we get a whole nother lesson. We got to recognize when the issues in our life are dealt with. Now, I don't think our recognition is going to be quite as easy as Joab. We're not going to see a head come flying over the wall, right? That was kind of issue dealt with. You know it, right? But you need to understand when your issues are settled. I think a lot of times, not only do we fight bordering issues, but we let an issue keep going even after the issue's already been resolved. And it tears us down. You, you need to learn just like Joab does right here. You need to learn when an issue is settled and let it be settled. Stop going back to it. Stop reliving it. Stop hashing it out again. We, we, we too often want to hash out and rehash out old battles over and over and over again. Joab doesn't do that. And you can ask yourself this. Do you really think this is the way Sheba expected his story to end? I doubt it. Nobody's picturing themselves with their head flying off. Like most people accept, I want, I want to be big. I want to be important. Maybe if I, if I do this thing and get things going. His own pride brought about his own destruction. And your pride's going to do the same thing if you let it push you to rebellion and push you to further and further away. Rebellion stole his future. You could say it that way. And, and, and honestly, if we look at this, I think there's a rebel inside each of our hearts. At some point, every single one of us, we don't want to obey. We don't want to surrender, whether we're talking to God or anybody else. But we also need to understand that rebellion is foolish because it always leads to disaster. Keep it in check. There's not a wall high enough or a tower strong enough to protect us against God and his will for what he's got going for us. Right? So they ended the rebellion of Sheba, but there's still this division of Judah and Israel remaining. Now, that, that's we'll get into kings a whole lot later, but there's a civil war that's going to take place. Just pointing that out to show you that there's cause and effect and there's consequences for the way things go. Look at this last section. We're almost done. 23 through 26. List David's second administration. And that's really all these verses I think at the end are kind of doing. They're a description of David's leadership team. It's confirming that David's truly reestablished himself to be king. Says that Joab's over all the army of Israel. I do have to kind of pause and laugh here. Because what, what has Joab done to get back in this spot? Murder. Lulls. David is a hero in dealing with it. Am I right? 
He will destroy any enemy outside. But when it's an inside the walls problem. Now, I'm not just talking about his family. We picked on him about his family for a long time. Anything inside the walls, David doesn't ever deal with. Just think last week when he got to Zeba and, uh, and Mephibosheth. Should, should he have given Zeba any land? No. He should have cut that dude's head off and threw it over a wall, right? But what does he say? He says, oh, I'll just split it up. You get half, you get half. He never deals with stuff that's going on on the inside. Now, church, understand. I understand internal problems, fights, arguments are the hardest to deal with. But also understand David would have saved himself a lot of trouble if he would have dealt with some internal stuff as good as he dealt with external stuff. So, so we just pause right there to see that, right? And we'll see more of that in Kings. 23 through 26. Duke did such an awesome job saying those names. I'm not going to say any of them. Mostly because I can't. And I'm okay to admit that. I'm not a good reader, right? Here, here's what it's showing us. The greatness of David's kingdom, guys. Is never built on David's abilities alone. It's always on an effective team. We, we said this way back at the beginning of 2 Samuel. I don't know if you remember. But David's success was always linked to his mighty men. And his mighty men's uh, success was always linked to being with David. When those guys were together, they were undefeatable. But when they were apart, that's when problems came. That's when struggles came. That's when, when issues got in, right? Maybe some of the things we're not winning in life are because we haven't developed the leadership team we're supposed to have. The, 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 the friends we're supposed to have, the, 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 the helpers that we're supposed to have. It's important to note that David was surrounded by good leaders. And I think he prospered because of that. Proverbs chapter 17 talks about how worthy the, the, the love of a friend and a brother is. It even goes in, I think, in the same, uh, same chapter. It talks about that those that are made during times of trial and tribulation become our greatest adversaries and our greatest friends. David develops these, the second leadership team after a pretty rough spot in his life. And it's because of that that I think David is getting rack on the right track. I even I even sway more in saying maybe he got rid of those concubines because he realized I should have never had concubines. It went against God. And I don't know that. I'm just trying to give David benefit of the doubt. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe he just had corrupt ideas about it and didn't want to be with him that way. I don't know. But I do see David getting more positive here, and I think that's a great thing. So, so I want to ask you this as we wrap this thing. What's your rebellion costing you right now? Because I think all of us are rebelling against something. What is it costing you? What, 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 what side effects? What, what others are being hurt because of it? And the benefit is we don't have to stay on this road. Rebellion's a choice. We don't have to keep making that choice. We don't have to live a life full of guilt. God made the most amazing thing when he sent his Jesus, uh, Jesus to, to die on the cross. He didn't die on the cross for good people, by the way. He, he didn't die on the cross for obedient people. He died on the cross for rebels like you and me. He died to, 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 to solve our problem of being rebels into becoming children of God. And I wonder if you and I can admit this morning that we've got a little bit of rebellion in our heart that probably needs to be addressed. I, I wonder if some of us need to understand that if we would deal with the problem, we might would find more peace. And, and, and if we would realize the danger and the pain that we bring not only to ourselves, but to others, it could be a huge turnaround in our lives. The last question, I want you guys to write this one down. I don't have anything to go with it. It's just a wording that we see through this whole, really chapter 20 is almost the end of, of what's going on. We got a couple more chapters. But you write down this question, seize or receive? Seize, not sneeze, seize. You sneeze, we say God bless you, right? You seize, we yell at you. Or receive. 
David was the type of guy, they called him a man after God's own heart. Everything he does, now he makes mistakes, don't get me wrong, but everything he does to get back into positions that God wanted him to be in is because he received it. He received it from God. He never went and took Saul's spot. He received it. He never went out and, 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 and did things that, that he would have normally wanted to do and could do as a king and could do as a warrior. He received it from God. But those that we see, especially in this chapter and a couple chapters before, that were seizing, they went out and took what they wanted, including Joab, by the way, that we just now use as a good example. He's got his coming to him in the book of Kings. All right. Some of you may remember that from Father's Day where David tells his own son Solomon, you look out for that guy. All right. There's something, something bad about him. You got to keep an eye on him. Right. When we seize, even though we want to make us feel like Joab's, we end up like Sheba's. When we receive, we can get the blessings that God's got for us. Let's pray. Father God, we love you. We thank you for this morning, God. God, we, we thank you for this chapter, for this story, Lord God, in David's life. And God, as we continue to, to search out your will through these verses, Lord God, on what you want to accomplish in our lives, Lord, I pray right now that your spirit, God, come on in. Drive out that spirit of rebellion. Drive out that spirit, Lord God, of, of rising up. And Lord, let us humbly seek your advice in your way. God, let us not be those that want to seize too early, Lord God, clothes that don't fit us. But God, let us receive the outfit you picked for us to wear at the right time. Lord God, I pray that you use this, this story this morning, Lord God, to open our eyes on some things we need to deal with. So that we can have the peace, Lord God, that your word promises. Lord God, moving us in such a special way, Lord God, make us courageous enough, Lord God, to deal with the hard things the right way, your way. In your great name we pray. Amen.